Welcome to our second to the last look at the race for the White House with Real Clear Politics podcast, In the Arena. I'm correspondent Alexis Simenden. In the final 13 days of the election, our reporters and editors will devote two more Thursdays to election developments and the shifting battlegrounds as the unprecedented 2016 election rushes to a close. In our podcast this week, we focused on New Hampshire, now leaning toward Hillary Clinton and no longer a toss-up, as well as the fascinating Senate contest in that state. Real Clear's national political correspondent, Caitlin Huey Burns, explains how Clinton expanded a lead over Donald Trump to more than seven percentage points in New Hampshire, according to the Real Clear Politics Average. Real Clear's polling analyst, David Byler, interviewed George Washington University professor John Sides, who runs the Monkey Cage blog at the Washington Post and edited The Science of Trump, explaining the rise of an unlikely candidate. David talked with Sides about political science and 2016. In our Newsmaker segment this week, Real Clear's congressional correspondent James Arkin spoke with Cook Political Report Senate expert Jennifer Duffy, who has 30 years of experience with political campaigns. We welcome your feedback at realclearpolitics.com. First up, you'll hear from Caitlin, who will describe how the Granite State is seen as a laboratory for potential ticket splitting and what that means. In the final days of the campaign, Hillary Clinton is spending valuable time in New Hampshire, a state she is poised to win. The Real Clear Politics polling average shows the Democrat ahead by eight percentage points in the Granite State, and many would be surprised if Donald Trump pulled out a victory here next month. But New Hampshire is home to one of the most competitive U.S. Senate races in the country and serves as a key battleground for several themes of the 2016 campaign. And so, when Clinton came here to campaign this week, she was interested in boosting Governor Maggie Hassan, who is challenging Republican Senator Kelly Ayotte. And she brought along with her top surrogate Elizabeth Warren, who went after Ayotte. Well, I will say one thing. Donald Trump sure has made Kelly Ayotte dance. Day one, she loves him. Day two, she hates him. Day three, she's back with him. Boy, spins round and round. Donald Trump is right. Kelly is weak. Republicans in the state say Ayotte is one of the strongest incumbents running this cycle in a really tough environment. They say her brand is durable enough to survive the Trump storm. But she is also running against a twice-elected Democratic governor in a state where Clinton is leading by a sizable margin. Still, the Senate race is in a virtual dead heat, according to the Real Clear Politics polling average. And New Hampshire has a history of ticket splitting. John Kerry won here in 2004, while Republican Senator Judd Gregg was re-elected. Democratic Senator Jean Shaheen survived a dismal election cycle for her party in 2014. New Hampshire once looked promising for Trump. We want to thank the people of New Hampshire, right? Do we love the people of New Hampshire? You know, I said it, and I said it even a year ago. I said, I think I'm going to do really well there because I'm here a lot, and it's so beautiful, and I love it so much, and I love the people. He has visited several times as his party nominee, including a stop here the day before news broke of his now infamous Access Hollywood recording. Ayotte cut ties with Trump afterward and is now campaigning partly as a check against a potential Clinton administration. The Chamber of Commerce is running ads on her behalf with that message. America's future is far from certain, but no matter who the next president is, New Hampshire needs a strong voice in the U.S. Senate. 
That's Senator Kelly Ayotte. Meanwhile, Democrats believe their united front here will pay dividends for the party in New Hampshire. But it wasn't always that way. Bernie Sanders won the primary here by 22 points, delivering a stinging blow to the Clinton campaign early on. But they have since reconciled, and Sanders has visited New Hampshire several times to campaign for Clinton. In the final days of the campaign here, the question isn't so much about whether Clinton will win New Hampshire, but whether down-ballot candidates can survive the weight of Trump. Another way of looking at it, though, is whether Clinton has enough support to bring Democrats up with her. Next, you'll hear from David, who interviewed Professor John Sides, author of The Gamble, Choice and Chance in the 2012 Presidential Election, among other works. This week, we have Professor John Sides on the show. And if you're an RCP reader, you might already know who he is. But for those of you who don't, Professor Sides, he's a professor of political science at George Washington University here in Washington, D.C., and he runs the Monkey Cage blog over at the Washington Post, which is a great site. Basically, it's designed to bring all the wonderful research that's in academia related to political science to a wider audience. Uh, he's authored a number of books, including The Gamble, which is widely viewed as one of the authori authoritative takes, if not the authoritative story, on the 2012 election. So thanks so much for coming on the show. Uh, it's a pleasure for, to be here. Thanks for having me. We're just going to start directly into it about political science and the 2016 election. And I'm sure you've been asked this question before, but I kind of want to ask it a little bit differently, which is um, back during the GOP primary, there were a number of political scientists and data journalists who uh, relied heavily on a book called The Party Decides. And just for our listeners, The Party Decides is essentially boiled down to a very basic version a theory that party elites, people who are really involved in politics, people who have some form of power, oftentimes try to sort of coordinate ahead of the actual voting in presidential primaries, uh, try to figure out who's ideologically mainstream, um, who's electable, and use their influence to help push the voters in that direction of that candidate. And Usually we've had ideologically mainstream, relatively electable candidates, and the theory has looked like it's held up pretty well. But this year we have Trump, and Trump is not an ideologically mainstream Republican. He certainly, if you look at the polling numbers, has some issues with electability. Um, and so this has caused some people to take kind of a, I would say a little bit of a hyperbolic view that says, you know, all our theories are nonsense and 2016 is crazy and we don't know up from down and so on and so forth. But I do think that there's a point in there that uh, 2016 has revealed that there's some cracks in some political science theories while some other theories seem to be chugging along pretty well and predicting things pretty well. So uh, I took a little bit to get here, but I guess my question is sort of What's the state of kind of political science theories as they relate to elections? Which ones do you think we need to chuck completely? Are there ones that we only need to revise maybe? Are there ones that have really held up well? What's your sort of read on kind of the empirical world of figuring out elections? Well, one election outcome um, is not a reason to throw a theory away, period. Yeah. Um, that's a pretty... Uh, narrow way of evaluating evidence, and so um, there's there's no um, theory that, that has b b been debunked by 
the Republican primary or by this particular general election. Um, the way that social scientists think about this question is to ask, you know, are there conditions under which um, particular theories are more applicable or less applicable? And I think with the party of the science in particular, I think the question is, are there conditions under which um, the increased kind of factionalism within the Republican Party make it more difficult for them to coordinate on an alternative to a candidate like Trump um, and may make it more difficult for them to coordinate in elections going forward? Mm -hmm. That's a reasonable question to ask uh, about the current party and how that might complicate the story that they tell in the party decides, which, uh, which stops in 2004. But on the other hand, you know, the Democratic primary hardly looks like a, an extraordinary exception to their theory. Um, so, you know, again, like I, I'm not sure I would I would throw that out. Sure. Um, similarly, I, you know, what is distinctive about the general election is that you've got a candidate in Trump that is going to probably underperform what we would have expected the Republican candidate to do, and uh, we would not have expected the the race to be this this. Um, Uncompetitive, we would have thought probably early on it should have been closer to a toss-up, and that's what some of the fundamental conditions in the country would lead us to expect. But I mean, you know, there's no um, disagreement um, between political scientists and journalists, or among political scientists, that candidates and campaigns matter. Typically, in a presidential campaign, you would see smaller effects of those things because the candidates would be relatively sort of similar in basic. Um, capability and resources, and, you know, both campaigns would be similar in their level of professionalization and the resources they have available to them. Um, so what's distinctive about 2016 is that doesn't seem to be the case. There's a pretty big asymmetry between Clinton and Trump in all of those categories. And so it's not surprising then that he's underperforming what a generic Republican might get. But again, I mean, we know from looking at a variety of different kinds of elections, how House elections would be a good example that attributes of candidates matter. Uh, and that campaign activity matters. Um, and that's true even in, in presidential races at the margin. So again, like I, I don't see this as, as some case that invalidates theory. I just see it as a case that uh, departs from um, some basic history, but also perhaps um, uh, some sort of simplistic ways of viewing the world. But I don't think that's really where political science stands. Sure. I think that's uh, that's really helpful. And it kind of actually goes into uh, another question that I think that our listeners would be pretty interested in, which is kind of about the process of political science in general. So, you know, on this podcast, we talk to a number of people who sort of live in the intersection of data and politics. We talk to pollsters and people who work in the campaign world. We talk to other data journalists, things like that. Um, and it seems like a lot of people have different ways of processing this information. If you're a pollster, you have your interviews that you've done and that you're collecting and that you're using, you know, statistical methods to make inferences with you. If you're a traditional reporter, you go out and you talk to elected officials and you talk to voters and that's kind of how you process things. And, you know, if you do data journalism, um, like I do and like a couple of us at Real Clear Politics do, you sort of are taking in uh, most of the time quantitative data, uh, trying to m make good models, uh, use historical data. We oftentimes rely heavily on a lot of the political science theories that uh, you just talked about. And I'm just wondering how the process of sort of a political scientist, what that process looks like in terms of uh, thinking about this election uh, in real time, um, 
what data you're specifically looking for and interested in, how you think about it, sort of uh, when you take an in information and you get an understanding about elections, just what that whole, uh, I use the word process a lot, but kind of what that process looks like. Sure. So what data is useful uh, depends on what questions you want to ask. Uh, so if the questions you want to ask uh, and therefore answer are questions about um, the nature of decision making within the Trump campaign, then the kind of information that a journalist may be able to get by talking to members of the campaign or on or off the record um, is the most useful information for answering that question. Sometimes what happens when we get into these conversations about the different ways that people understand electoral politics is it becomes a sort of weird battle um, about who's got you know the better take on things. And I think, again, like what, who's got the better take will depend on, on what exactly you want to know. Um, and I've never particularly been um, dismissive of the reporting that campaign journalists and others do in this regard, um, although sometimes political scientists are lumped in with the data journalism camp, and that's set up as some opposition to um, traditional ways of reporting on campaigns. I think that those distinctions are vastly overdrawn. Um, I, I think the question that animates the work that political scientists do, um, one is, you know, why do elections turn out the way they do? So we, we're interested in explaining those outcomes. And we're also interested in, you know, testing systematic theories about, therefore, the ways that different actors and campaigns make decisions, whether that be the choices that candidates make, the way in which the news media reports on the campaign, and ultimately the choices that voters themselves make. That we're interested in explaining those choices um, and then linking them to the electoral outcome. I think the best way that we can do that with the tools that we use are to gather sort of systematic data on those things. So we want to be able to generalize beyond just anecdotes. We want to be able mm -hmm. to generalize beyond you know, conversations that you might be able to have with reporters um, in diners or at campaign rallies. Um, we want to find data that we think are reliable, so we're not just looking at how many yard signs can we see when we drive through you know, the western Pennsylvania countryside. We'd like to be able then to take those data and actually make, I think, causal inferences about what's, what's driving people's choices. And I think that's, that's where even you'll see, I think, sometimes breaks between political scientists and some of even the more numerate um, journalists or so-called data journalists out there. Uh, you know, it's pretty easy to take a, a survey or, God forbid, an exit poll and run a crosstab that says, oh, look, uh, most of the people who believe this thing also voted for Donald Trump. Therefore, that thing must have caused them to vote for Donald Trump. And oftentimes that sort of gets the chicken and the egg backward. I mean, it's no surprise that people who say the system is rigged think you're going to vote for Donald Trump. But is that something that actually caused them to vote that way? Or did they decide to vote for Trump for other reasons? And then they're able to correctly echo back that survey interviewers, the rhetoric that he uses during the campaign. So the data that I think I'm most interested in in this particular election cycle are data that allows us to make stronger inferences about what's causing what. And so, for example, I've been involved in a project with um, a couple of other political scientists and the RAND Corporation to gather um, panel data on voters interviewed six times during the campaign. So this means we were re-interviewing the same group of people six different times. Mm -hmm. And that helps us get a sense of um, what's actually changing within these individuals and gives us a better sense of um, whether something is a chicken or the egg. Mm. It also um, enables us, I think, to perhaps 
look backward. I mean, some of these RAND interviewer, RAND respondents were interviewed um, in 2012, even in 2008. So we have a much better sense of where they were sort of before the rise of a candidate like Trump, let's say, or before Hillary Clinton declares her um, campaign for president. Um, so we're doing the same thing with data that we gathered in 2012 for the gamble. We're looking to re-interview those respondents right after the election. So we'll, we'll have information from these people from late 2011, um, and then we'll have information from them in 2016. Uh, and again, that gives us a better sense of, of what's changing or what's different. I think the last thing that we're always interested in is trying to find um, as many com points of comparison as we can find either within this election cycle or between this cycle and other cycles. So it's not, I mean, so it's one thing to say, okay, a measure of attitudes towards gender, maybe we should call that sexism, is correlated with support for Donald Trump. Um, but it's another thing to, to figure out whether, it, is that distinctive to Trump or is that something that is true for lots of different political candidates? Um, and it's actually true for lots of different political candidates, including for Obama and Romney in 2012. So it's not quite clear then that, that this is a distinctive feature of Trump. So in some of the work that we've already been publishing at the Monkey Cage and elsewhere, we've tried to show that, look, 2016 is different than 2008 and 2012 in terms of, let's say, how much racial attitudes affect uh, Republican voters' choices in the primary, and in particular how those things are associated with support for Trump. Um, and we, can, we can draw comparisons going back even further in time. You know, is Trump like Pat Buchanan in 92? Is he like George Wallace in 1968? I mean, I think those things really help to to – give us a sense of, of what's causing what and then what is actually unusual or important about this election. So one other thing that I wanted to talk about in terms of uh, just kind of the political science angle on this election more broadly before we, you know, pivot to a, a couple different things is that uh, it's something you alluded to a little bit already um, in a couple at a couple different points. but. Uh, 2016, I've seen this on Twitter and various other places, is kind of like uh, one of the best natural experiments in political science ever in some ways, um, in the sense that uh, some of the things that we take for granted or see every single time in other campaigns doesn't necessarily hold, and that that gives us a window into uh, whether you know uh, certain things matter. So the, the prime example that uh, everyone sort of cites is uh, turnout, which is we can kind of see is that usually two different campaigns run, to put it very generally, competent operations with, you know, decent candidates who are able to try to uh, get out the vote and make that happen and spend money on that, etc. But it seems like there's a pretty big asymmetry this time around uh, for Clinton versus Trump, where Clinton has a very sophisticated effort and Trump has shown uh many fewer signs of having a similar sort of high-level thing going in his campaign. So uh, that's just one example, which is to get to my question of, uh, in the aftermath of the election, what new things are sort of most interesting for you to think about or study? Is there anything that you think, wow, after 2016, I'm going to have uh, excellent data on issue A, B, C, or D in political science that's going to let me uh, think about or learn something new potentially? Well, I think the, there's a couple possibilities. Um, one is that we have more uh, variation in the candidate's advertising advantage. Um, typically speaking, in, in at least in a race like 2012, it was you know difficult for one side to really have a kind of chronic or consistent advantage over time. Um, you had a lot of sort of trading off 
advantages depending on who was up in a particular market uh, in a particular week. And in 2016, as my you know, co-author Lynn Vavrick recently documented, you know, you just have a much more chronic Clinton advantage. Um, you know, Trump's been able to fight to parity and, and the number of advertising airings, you know, only at a few brief points in the campaign. And, and Lynn's argued that in some um, sense that's actually been hurtful. I mean, you know, Clinton's poll numbers, Trump's poll numbers vary for other reasons, but on net, her advantage in the battleground states has helped her. So I, I think that's going to be a, a useful uh, question to examine. Um, the ground game, same thing. I mean, I think the, the challenge there, again, is that, um, you know, we, we saw a similar kind of asymmetry in 2016. I mean, excuse me, in 2012. I mean, Obama had more field offices than Romney and the, the RNC had. Um, and this year, you see a similar difference, um, just fewer field offices overall. So, I mean, I, I, that's not necessarily an unusual feature of this election. So I guess the question is whether we can leverage that to show any variation and um, turnout or vote share, depending on you know whether you were potentially exposed to field work as a consequence of, of being located um, near one of these offices. So I, I, so it's it's, a, it's useful. I mean, it, it gives us more variation than usual. I think the challenge, and this is the the, the problem kind of embedded in the natural experiment, is that you know. Lots of things are different about Trump relative to a typical presidential candidate. And in some sense, it's going to be difficult, at least at times, to parse out what are his challenges in terms of uh, personality or temperament and how voters perceive that relative to Clinton versus his challenges in terms of, of running a sort of a well-funded, professionalized campaign. Um, you know, again, we can look for variation that's related to campaign activity. If you presume that the sort of effect of his temperament or personality is essentially a national phenomenon as opposed to a battleground state phenomenon, mm -hmm. but still, it's going to be. I mean, again, like it's it's nice to have something that's different than usual, but it's also, I think, um, challenging. It would be, it would have been, of course, ideal to find a candidate who, you know, in some sense, had only one of those two challenges: right. personality or campaign, and then we could really do a better job with it. So. Yeah. Um, Nevertheless, I mean, again, I, but I, I do think it's it's probably still on net helpful mm -hmm. compared to the, the way a traditional presidential campaign would be run. Next, we're going to talk about uh, the House model real quick. Uh, just you recently released a model that uh, predicts basically the results of the 2016 House of Representative elections. And uh, the House hasn't gotten as much media attention uh, maybe as it maybe should have. I don't know exactly how to make that judgment. But the presidential election has taken up a lot of attention. House has gotten less. Um, so if you could just take our readers sort of through your model, sort of what goes into it, uh, what assumptions you make, uh, what it predicts, uh, how confident those predictions are, that sort of thing, just a basic overview of that. That would be super helpful. Our model basically takes account of um, some of the fundamental factors that we know influence House elections at the national and district level. So at the national level, we know that measures of the overall uh, conditions in the country, so the president's approval rating, how well is the economy doing, is it a midterm or presidential year, those things influence um, how well the two parties do. And then at the district level, um, it's the usual suspects, you know, it's the incumbent running, 
Um, how well does the president's party typically do in that district in a presidential election? Um, how experienced are the candidates? Does one have political experience that the other doesn't have? And then how much are they are, are they raising in terms of money? And, and those two latter things are you know signals of the sort of quality of the two candidates. Um, and the advantage of a model like this is it basically makes a prediction not just overall in terms of seat share, but it makes a prediction for every single district. Mm-hmm. And so in some sense, we don't have to – so if, you, if you're going to use, like, the generic ballot um, polling data to forecast House elections, um, you know, that will give you a sort of a popular vote estimate for the House. Then you'd have to figure out how to translate that into a seat share. So we're sort of going to sidestep that challenge by making a district-level prediction and then aggregating up those district-level outcomes to an overall estimate of the seat share with, you know, an associated level of, of uncertainty, right, um, in that estimate. So, and again, like, you, the, the assumptions built into that are that, you know, the relationships between these factors and house election outcomes, you know, historically speaking, are give us a good sense of what would happen today. And, you know, historically speaking means we probably are going to go back at least to 1980, um, and we could probably go back before that, too, uh, depending on sort of how much data you want to build in um, with the trade-off of the potential that late, the earlier elections are not really diagnostic of recent elections. And so maybe in some sense you're making predictions based on data that's more useful, but also some data that's less useful. So, you know, when we did that, we came up with um, an estimated seat share of 204 seats for the Democrats um, with a confidence interval or sort of a measure of uncertainty that's basically plus or minus eight seats, which is, you know, not insubstantial uncertainty, but that's the nature of these kinds of models. And then, you know, that'll give you a sense of whether they're likely to keep their House, the Republicans are likely to keep their House majority, and we gave them, you know, better than 99% chance based on those factors alone. Um, And so, you know, what really... um, what the model then allows us to do is to simulate some different kinds of outcomes. And so, for example, we simulated what would happen if Clinton beat Trump by eight points, which is about where she is in the national polls. And there was a particularly strong kind of coattail effect down the ballot where she, you know, votes for her really helped Democratic House candidates. Uh, and that was, you know, gave the Democrats like about a 25 percent chance of taking the majority. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's a good, that's useful, right? That tells you, okay, you know, yeah. there may be some conditions at work in this election which are helping Democrats outperform the fundamentals. Um, and if she was able to get to something like a 12-point um, victory over Trump, you know, that actually might put uh, the, the control of the House uh, at a sort of toss-up level, a 50-50 um, coin flip. So, again, these are just simulations, right? You know, we don't, we don't know for sure what's going to happen. Um, but it gives you a sense of, of what the consequences of, let's say, an uh, underperforming Trump campaign might mean um, down the ballot. I mean, the liability of a model like this, I mean, is it even with measures of fundraising and, and the candidates' experience in elective office, we're probably missing some of the really granular data about these candidates and what's going on in these House races. You know, polling data would help if there were lots of good House polls, but there aren't. Um, and then I think the, the other place where you'll find that kind of granular data is a place like the Cook Political Report or some place where the, the folks there, like Dave Wasserman, have a really uh, good sense of, of these individual races, in part because they've interviewed these candidates. And I think that gives them a window into who's likely to win, um, simply based on 
how these candidates come across in interviews. It's almost like they're applying for a job. Mm-hmm. So I, I think that 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 so I would expect um, that just the fundamentals alone are probably going to get some races wrong, and 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 they're going to miss some of the competitive races in particular that are close to toss-ups right now, but break one way or the other. Um, our experience doing this in, in previous cycles is that on net, overall, um, in terms of seat share, this model is going to be um, pretty good and, and not necessarily any worse than, than people who are handicapping the election without um, an explicit statistical model. Um, but you know, underneath that overall relative accuracy will certainly be some inaccurate calls in particular races. So uh, one thing that I tend to ask people about kind of at the end of these things is sort of the past or the future of uh, whatever it is we're talking about. And um, uh, just it'll sound like a weird question, but uh, bear with me. So uh, suppose that you were, instead of being a political science professor in, 20, in the 2010s, that you were a political professor of science in the uh, 1960s and that you were studying a lot of the same topics that you're studying now, um, but you were doing it in your exact same position back then. And suppose, you know, it's, say, 1966, 50 years ago, and um, you go into a coma, or you move to a tropical island, or essentially something happens and uh, you don't come into contact with any sort of political science material whatsoever for 50 years. And then in 2016, you reemerge either, uh, you know, you reemerge from your coma or you move back to the U.S. or whatever the scenario you like is. And you start to look at the scholarship and you look at the data and things like that. Uh, So the first half of the question is uh, what sort of would have changed both in our politics and in political science? And then the second half of the question would be, um, you know, suppose you uh, hit the lottery tomorrow and you uh, decide to move yourself and your family uh, down to some beautiful place in Peru or something like that, and you are walled off from politics uh, in America and political science literature, things like that, for another 20 or 30 years. And then, you know, say in 2036 or 2040, you come back to the U.S. and you start looking at all these things again. Uh, what trends, both in politics and political science, would you expect to see? And uh, what do you think is maybe going to happen if any predictions out that far are even possible? Well, I think if you were to wake up in 2016 and you hadn't followed anything since 1966, I mean, one thing that would strike you is what's the same? Um, you know, if if you said, wow, well, one thing we expect in, in, in most elections is Partisans are going to be very loyal to their party. Well, you know, that was well established by 1966. Mm-hmm. Or that we were going to have divisive politics in and around issues about race and ethnicity. <laughs> you know, yeah. that wasn't, that's no surprise either. Uh, and I think what that illustrates is that people's um, political and social identities are pretty powerful um, and, and pretty stable parts of their um, sort of political thinking and um, the, the initial work that political scientists had done in the 1940s, 50s, and early 60s to establish that that's the case is as relevant today as it was then. Um, so I, I don't, th- I mean, certainly some of the mechanics of campaigning have changed. Obviously, you'd be, you know, struck by the ways in which campaigns use media and technology and data differently. Um, 
but you know they're doing they're doing so still in the context of certain bedrocks that influence how voters choose. So I think that context is is still um, as important now as it was then. Yeah. Um, if if I were to f- forecast going forward, I, um, I don't think we really have any good sense of this. Um, Forty years or thirty years in the future, uh, it's a I mean it's a challenge to know sort of what's going to be salient or important in in politics. I mean, obviously the country is changing in, in the sense of it's becoming more ethnically diverse and that seems likely to continue. Um, the country has seen, you know, some degree of uh, slow income growth for a large chunk of the population for the last 30 or so years. Um, you know, those are, those are chronic phenomena, but a lot depends in terms of their, their political relevance and, and, and how sort of the parties adapt um, and, you know, what kinds of ideas or strategies are being offered. And typically speaking, you know, politicians are rational people and they adapt and do things that, that make it difficult to sort of extrapolate from those kinds of trends to any sort of specific political outcome. So for that reason alone, I'm uncertain. Then you also have the fact that, you know, there are changes in the issue agenda. There are you know, events that happen that we really could not have fully anticipated. Um, it's difficult to anticipate large-scale um, wars, um, for example. It's difficult, difficult to anticipate sort of precise ups and downs in the, the business cycle. Uh, I just don't think that we're, that we're great at um, imagining what politics is going to be like, you know, decades into the future. Yeah. Um, and I, you know, you see that this is almost kind of a truism because you'll see people say, "Well, if could we have ever imagined, you know, even four years ago that we would have seen a Donald Trump nomination?" And of course, the answer is no. Most people never would have envisioned that. So for that reason alone, I'm 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 pretty cautious about making um, strong predictions. I do think that we have um, good theories that point to some of the factors that that matter in electoral politics and politics generally. And I, and I don't anticipate that we're going to move to a world in which many of those theories are irrelevant. But at the same time, what those theories predict about specific outcomes um, is going to depend a lot upon um, circumstances that we can't anticipate. Great. Well, thanks so much for coming on the show. I think that's all, all on my end. Yeah, really appreciate it. Uh, Thank you, David, very much for having me. And finally, James will ask Jennifer Duffy, senior editor at the Cook Political Report in Washington, whether she thinks the Senate next year will look red or blue. I'm James Arkin, uh, Real Clear Politics congressional reporter, and I'm talking with Jennifer Duffy, senior editor for the Cook Political Report, and we're going to talk a little bit about the Senate map two weeks out from the elections. Jennifer, thanks so much for uh, talking with me today. Uh, thanks for having me. Um, so you wrote yesterday that given where things look right now, you expect Democrats to net between five to seven seats, uh, which would give them a, a slim majority in, in the Senate. And so I just wanted to start with that prediction uh, and ask you how confident you are uh, that Democrats are, are going to win back the majority uh, and how much, if they do, that would have to do with the, uh, the slide that we've seen in Donald Trump's support over the last three weeks or so. Well, I am fairly confident that they will get to at least 51 seats. Um, Republicans had done a very good job of running somewhat parallel to Trump, you know, not linking themselves with 
his campaign running on issues that were local or issues that appealed uh, to the Republican base. Uh, you know, I don't know of a single Republican in a competitive race who has campaigned with Trump. But something, you know, something changed when the Access Hollywood tape was released on October 7th. Um, you start to see um, Trump's numbers slide uh, pretty much across the board. And then, you know, following that, you start to see the numbers for Senate Republicans dip. Um, and the cause of that is probably um, what some pollsters call casual Republicans, meaning Republicans who, um, you know, are not consistent voters, um, that, you know, they just became disengaged. But in the Senate, they need those voters to turn out. And so when that Access Hollywood tape came out, we saw uh, Republican incumbents um, split sort of on, on how they handled it. We had some like uh, uh, Richard Burr and Roy Blunt, um, Marco Rubio, who stood behind their support of Donald Trump, although like you said, it's not like they're out campaigning with him or you know, full-throated in their support. Uh, they're, you know, they're, they've uh, hedged a little bit. But then we saw some like Rob Portman, Kelly Ayotte, uh, Joe Heck, the congressman in Nevada who's running for that open seat, uh, withdraw their support. Um, did, In your opinion, just based on what you've seen over the last couple of weeks, did anyone make a, a critical mistake in the decision that they made as it relates to their own particular race? Did anyone really hurt their election chances, either by sticking with Trump or by withdrawing support of him? Maybe. <laughs> Definitely maybe. No, I no, look, it, it's been very split. So, you know, you had a number of Republicans, including Senator Ayotte, New Hampshire, Joe Hack, who's the challenger in Nevada, John McCain in Arizona, Lisa Murkowski in Alaska, Rob Portman, um, all walked away from Trump. It seems to have created quite a backlash in two of these states. In New Hampshire, uh, against Ayotte, Republican base is um, not pleased with her decision. And she's also being buffeted to her left by Democrats who are just calling it a brazen political move, uh, calling her an opportunist. The same um, thing has happened with Joe Heck in Nevada. Uh, you know, Democrats are running ads against him. Um, there are uh, part of the base is very upset with him. And Nevada, the Nevada Republican Party um, has a decent Tea Party membership in it. Uh, so they really aren't happy. Meanwhile, McCain, Portman, Murkowski, you know, <laughs> they, they did their thing and moved on and, and nobody's raised uh, much of a fuss about it. The only person out there still walking a tightrope on this is Pat Toomey in Pennsylvania. You know, he won't say uh, whether uh, he's going to vote for him. He, you know, he doesn't, he doesn't support him, but he, he's not quite pushing him away. Um, and there doesn't seem to be any real fallout for, say, Richard Burr in North Carolina or, you know, Roy Blunt in Missouri and, and Todd Young in Nevada. I'm sorry. Todd Young in Indiana, those are two states that where Trump's still ahead. So it doesn't really make sense for them to walk away. Yeah, and 
interestingly enough, we just talking about where the map sits and, and sort of how both parties are viewing it. Um, we saw the, the Republican outside group Senate Leadership Fund, uh, which is uh, allied with uh, Majority Leader Mitch McConnell, just said earlier this week that they were going to uh, put $25 million more into uh, trying to keep the Senate majority. Uh, it's going to split up between some of these states that we've been talking about um, and this is on top of you know tens of millions of dollars that this group and other groups have already spent on these races. And so I'm curious, uh, from what you know about uh, previous election cycles, um, where a, a group has as of toss-up seats like this have been in place so late, can a can a major cash infusion like 25 million dollars over the last two weeks really make a, a significant difference, or is the cake sort of mostly baked at this point in terms of these races? Well, I think, you you know, in terms of the, whether the cake is baked, you need to go pretty much state to state on that in how, you know, how many absentee ballots are, are out, you know, what early voting looks like. But here generally is, is why they're doing what they're doing. Um, you know, Republicans, surprisingly, have been pretty heavily outspent in a lot of these states. So this late spending is, is – trying to reach some parity. The other thing is that, you know, they believe that they that there are a couple of good messages out there. Um, one of them is, you know, don't give Hillary Clinton a blank check. Or a more subtle form of that is, you know, the need for checks and balances in Congress. And, um, you know, in some of these states, that could be a very effective message and that could you know reactivate some of these casual republicans it could it could fire up the base you know the hard truth though about that message is it pretty much concedes that trump is done uh that that clinton's going to win this general election the second message that they have to work with um is is frankly the news that came out this week about the obamacare premiums and um how much they're going up and um, you know, the threat of people losing, you know, their insurance um, because providers are leaving states. It has actually been used pretty effectively in Arizona so far uh, this cycle. So I can imagine you're going to see it pop up in a couple of other states. And again, they hope that that, you know, motivates the base. Yeah, I know we had an, an ad, I think, just released either today or yesterday in New Hampshire, uh, Kelly Ayotte, using that Obamacare message and the premiums rise to uh to try and sway some voters late in the race. So we've, we've heard Republicans talk about this for a while now, but I'm, but I'm curious for your thoughts on how big of an issue this is going to be for them, whether if Hillary Clinton is looking like she's going to win the election by a, a relatively large margin, which right now she leads by about five percentage points in our averages of the polls, and it seems like she's had a pretty healthy lead for a couple of weeks now, how concerned should Republican senators be that that might depress turnout, that that might convince some of these Republican voters that they don't need to or that they don't want to even show up to the polls? Oh, this has been a concern for Republicans um, for months, that there are voters out there who can't vote for Trump. They don't want to vote for Clinton. They realize that um, voting for Johnson is not is not practical uh, so the answer is perhaps just to not show up. You know, this is something they're aware of. I think that this is something that um, they're probably talking about to voters when they get that response, reminding them that, 
you know, you don't have to vote for president, uh, but really we need you to come um, vote for Senate and keep a keep a Republican Senate. So that's going on. The other concern, um, at least that's been expressed, um, or let's not call it a concern, a hope that has been expressed by some Democrats is that, you know, these Republicans who are going to vote for Clinton because they can't vote for Trump, um, you know, that they will cast their ballot, Democratic ballots down the line. And that, I think, is a fallacy. I think that they will vote for Clinton because they feel like they have no other choice. But then they're going to go back to their roots and they're going to they're going to vote uh, Republican. But really, the biggest challenge they have is the fact that there is no real Republican ground game uh, out there, um, whereas, you know, Clinton is everywhere. You know, they have 32 offices in Arizona, which wasn't even supposed to be, you know, a competitive state. Um, and Trump has um, exactly none. <laughs> so, you know, I know McCain has taken care of some of that himself. But, you know, there are some, um, you know, incumbents out there who are also going to be a little bit hurt by by the fact that there isn't that get out the vote effort that would normally be present in a in a presidential year. Well, you stole the, the next question that I was going to ask was specifically on the ground game. So I'm glad that you got to that. Um, <laughs> I want to take a look then at some of some of the specific races. Um, I, I think that uh, your analysis and, and uh, a lot of uh, people on both sides of the aisle really think that it's going to come down to about six races that uh, I, I believe are all ranked toss-ups, um, according to to you in the Cook Political Report. Um, and one of those that I that I want to talk about, and I was out there uh, for a couple of days earlier this week, is Missouri. Uh, it seems like this is sort of the uh, the quote-unquote surprise of the cycle. Um, it's a state that Donald Trump is doing well in, is probably going to win over Hillary Clinton, and yet you have Jason Kander, this this young uh, military veteran uh, who's running on a very sort of uh, change in Washington, uh, calling Roy Blunt a, you know, an insider with uh, hitting on the connection to lobbyists. Uh, and it seems like it's about a 50-50 race right now. Like Jason Kander has really made this a lot more competitive than people thought even just a couple of months ago. So I'm curious why you think, A, Jason Kander's um, message about being an outsider and change in Washington is resonating so much in Missouri, and B, whether you think he's going to be able to close this out over the next two weeks, or whether Roy Blunt is, is going to be able to kind of weather the storm and, and win a tight one. You know, it's it's interesting. Um, you know, When you talk about Missouri, you kind of have to talk about Indiana, uh, because these two races... Um, in some ways don't have a lot to do with the top of the ticket. And in some ways, they're products of what Trump has created. So, you know, Trump has rallied against the establishment. He's rallied against this idea of, you know, that Washington is rigged, that, um, you know, the, the whole idea of political insiders. And so you have, you have challengers in both of these races. And, and what sort of makes them ideal to talk about is we're talking about one Democrat and one Republican um, who's, who's raised these issues pretty effectively. I mean, in Missouri, you know, Jason Kander is, um, you know, a real contrast to Blunt. He's 30 years younger. Um, you know, he, he's at 35. He doesn't have a really deep resume and he's got, not much of a voting record, so he can sort of define himself here. 
but he has really successfully tied uh, Roy Blunt to this notion of insiders. And I have to tell you, for um, somebody whose family does not include an elected official, I have never seen um, a family get hit as hard as the blunts are in in this in this campaign. Indiana is sort of the same thing, only you know the the, the shoes on the other uh, partisan foot, so to speak. So you have Evan Bayh trying to make a comeback, and um, Republicans are pretty much using the same argument um, against him that once he left the Senate in in 2011 that he made a whole lot of money and you know he was pretty much you know a Washington insider who got a lot of deals done and so he's getting hurt by that as well and I think both of those things really emanate from some of what Trump has been talking about. Yeah, that's a, it's a really interesting compare and contrast, and it's, it's something that I actually wrote about uh, a couple of weeks ago, the fact that it's this sort of outsider message, or rather, it's really the, the attacks on the, uh, the so-called insider that are, that are particularly effective. Um, and with Evan Bayh in Indiana, we've seen Republicans sort of throw a, a giant opposition research book at him, everything from his residency to what he did in his final year for the Senate looking for, for jobs once he had announced that he wasn't going to run again to all the money that he made in the homes that he purchased after he left the Senate. Um, but it seems from... Public, oh, he owned one of those homes when he was in the Senate. <laughs> one of the homes, that, yes. One home that he owned when he was in the Senate, another that right. he bought after he left the Senate. Right. So multiple D.C. homes that they've attacked him on. Um, but we've seen in public polling that he's still got a pretty sl- a slim, but a, a, you know, in some of these polls, an outside-the-margin-of-error lead over Todd Young. Do you think that these attacks have... I mean, clearly they've had an effect in this race. Has it been enough? Have Republicans done enough to, to tear down Evan Bayh, someone who's really well-known in Indiana? And, you know, everyone seems to know the Bayh name. Well, exactly. You know, remember, he was a two-term governor. Remember that his father held this Senate seat for quite a long time. Um, but also realize that when he got in this race, he had a 21-point lead. And very high favorable ratings. Todd Young, the Republican, on the other hand, um, wasn't known by 50% of, of the voters in the state, and he wasn't very well defined. So Republicans have had sort of a two-pronged um, campaign here. One is to, to get Young better known, and the second is to go after Bai. Looking at polls now, the campaign against Bai has been pretty successful. I think what this comes down to... Um, Two things. One, do they have enough time? You know, this this race didn't start until late June, early July. Do they have enough time to, you know, to make the case for Todd Young? Uh, the second, um, you know, part of it, um, I think, is Trump's overall performance in the state. I mean, I've seen a lot of polls, uh, public and private, out of Indiana lately. Uh, it's very interesting that uh, one party's polls look very different from the other party's polls. So that automatically sends up a lot of flags for me. But the question, so I've seen um, with Trump up, I've seen it tied. Romney carried Indiana by 10 points. You know, Trump can't just eke out a victory here and expect to, you know, to help Todd Young. He's He's got to win 
um, pretty handedly. So I wanted to make sure to ask you about the Florida Senate race because it's a really interesting one where Democrats are, are facing a, a, a sort of really, really big problem where there's a lot of disagreement within the Democratic Party about how they're handling it. Uh, you have a state where Hillary Clinton seems to be winning by a, a slim margin. Uh, some polls show up by a, a, you know, a couple points. Some polls show it a little tighter. And in the Senate race, it's been a little bit closer than I think some people imagined. We've had some polls showing Marco Rubio with a pretty sizable lead, upwards of 10 points. We've had others that show Patrick Murphy within two points or even tied in recent weeks uh, in, in that race. Uh, but Democrats have pulled all of their money. The, the DSCC and Senate Majority PAC pulled all of their money out of those races for advertising in the final weeks. And Patrick Murphy's really kind of having to go it alone against Marco Rubio, someone with you know, statewide name ID. Uh, basically everyone in Florida knows who Marco Rubio is. Do you think that Democrats made a mistake by pulling out their money in a race that seems possible that they could eke out a win over Marco Rubio or was it the right decision given that they can spend that money you know spread it out over states like Missouri Indiana and North Carolina rather than going big in Florida um you know I think at the end of the day it probably isn't going to be a mistake because really a statewide presence on television in Florida is two million a week or more and you can take that $2 million and, you know, it gets you very far in places like Missouri, Indiana, North Carolina. Um, so, you know, how did they come to this decision? One, just the pure expense of, of Florida. Two, um, you know, Murphy damaged himself in this campaign, and he hasn't really recovered. This, the notion about embellishing the resume um, you know, turning a job into something it really wasn't. Uh, this week's problem is he has been denying any um, connections to Trump. Now there are photographs with his father, uh, with Trump, uh, working on a, a, a building project together. And, you know, it's, it's interesting because you don't usually see Democratic candidates uh, have these problems because they're pretty well vetted. Um, before they get in. So this was a bit of a surprise. This is Florida. Florida's a swing state. It, it, it's going to be a close race no matter what. There are some things underneath the ballot test, though, that I think help Rubio. Um, one uh, is he does very well with Hispanics and not just Cuban-Americans. He actually does well across the board. There were two polls released this month just of Hispanic voters, and his lead among them was between seven and nine points. Very hard for a Democrat to win statewide if they don't win Hispanics. The second thing is geographics. Um, look at Miami-Dade County, sort of the state's population center in a way, I mean, apart from Orlando, and Democrats usually run up the score here um, because it's a heavily Democratic area, and the last... Uh, Crosstab, I saw, actually showed them tied in Miami-Dade. That is Rubio's base. He is, he is from there. So that helps him, but I really don't expect, you know, I, I would put a thumb on the scale for him, but it's not going to be a big, impressive win. Right. So we've taken a look at some of the specific races. We know where you think the, uh, the map itself in general is going to go in 2016. Prediction of Democrats eking out a, a pretty narrow majority in the Senate. So quick question for you before we end. 
if your projection is Democrats, even even if they win the seven seats, the high end of your projection, that would give them a 53-47 majority. How much trouble are they in in 2018? Because we know they have to defend seats like Missouri, uh, Indiana, Montana in, in red states. We know they have to defend purple states like Florida and Ohio. And the map is basically a, a complete flip from this year. If they do win the majority this year, do you expect it to more likely than not be a two-year majority? You know, I think that um, given uh, what usually happens in midterm elections, um, given that you're right, the tables are turned, uh, Democrats will defend 25 seats, Republicans will only have to defend eight, um, that yes, they should enjoy their majority because it may not be around very long. I mean, I, I, I would... You know, if I were a betting person, I would bet on Republicans in 2018. But uh, we got a long way to go. Uh, let's let's survive 200. I'm sorry. Let's survive 2016 first. <laughs> <laughs> Good advice. We've got 13 days yeah. left to to get through. We should get through 2016 before we start talking about future elections. Right. All right. Well, Jennifer Duffy, senior editor with the Cook Political Report, talking Senate races. Thank you so much for uh, talking with me today. Really appreciate it. Okay. Thank you.